to be willing to just do it differently than you had planned. Are there any veterans here today? Thank you for your service. Our country appreciates it and we appreciate it. My sermon is not about veterans per se, except that we are all in a great controversy and we are meant to be veterans of this war. And God will bring it about as we continue to walk with him and trust him. Can you, and, and our Sabbath school lesson was about this today too, can you confess what you do not know? Can you testify to what you have not seen or heard or experienced? And I would have to tell you, and I would think each of you would say the same, no. Otherwise, it would be false testimony. It wouldn't be a true confession. Paul tells us, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Jesus tells us, I have overcome the world. Therefore, you will have tribulation, but don't worry. I've overcome it. 
And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Our sufferings are not for naught. Jesus uses them, and he is producing hope in you as you continue to walk with him. Recently I have been reading books by Katie Davis Majors. She's got titles like Kisses from Katie, Daring to Hope, and Safe All Along. When she was 19, she went to Uganda to spend a year there as a missionary. That year turned into a decade or more. Let me blow my nose. When she went, she fell in love with the people and the land. And she, as she got to know them, stayed during this year that she thought she was only staying for, she was horrified by the misery and the palpable suffering of these people. And yet they had happy hearts. She did not like the poverty and the disease and the lack of education and the lack of whole family units because they are so poor that even if they have a job, they do not always have enough money to feed their children and educate them, and so they will give them to an orphanage because the orphanage can at least feed them even if they can't educate them. And she was struck by this. She knew God before she went, and yet she found during her time in Uganda that she came to know him intimately as she followed him, as he asked her to adopt 14 of the young ladies that were orphaned, as he asked her to care for drunks and HIV victims, some of whom died in her arms, as she did first aid for these people, burn victims, children with chiggers in their feet, um, victims of malaria. She would bring them into her home and she would do her best to restore them because that was what God was asking her to do. She also started a nonprofit organization to try and meet the, the need that was so prevalent. And of course, one person and one organization cannot fill the great need that this world has. But she knew as we should know, too, that God, who lived on this earth, loved on this earth, suffered, and died on this earth, is the one who can meet the needs of every person. And he uses you in that plan, right where you're at. Katie writes, it's one thing to name a place the Lord will provide, and to believe it when the sun beats warm and life goes as planned. But it takes something sturdier, a courage only he can give, 
to believe it too when the night is long and the suffering is deep, when we can't see a ram in the thicket. It is a brave thing to hope, to continue in hope, knowing that God might say yes, but that he could say no, and choosing to praise him anyway. She describes an incredible Ugandan sunset that she and her big family were looking at one night, and she just happened to turn away from the sunset to look behind her, and there were huge storm clouds, but a rainbow. And she writes, The magnitude of its beauty far surpassed that of even the sunset, but we had to be facing the storm to see it. She goes on to ask, Would Abraham have known the beauty of the ram in the thicket if he hadn't climbed Mount Moriah with the intent of sacrificing his son? Would Jacob have seen the face of God, known his touch, if he had not wrestled? Would the woman with the issue of blood have known the tenderness of his gaze or the love of his voice if she hadn't been sick and hadn't been reaching? Storms. We all go through them. We all have suffering. In our scripture reading, God tries us in the furnace of affliction. And as I read to you already, he gives you endurance. He gives you character. He gives you hope as you go through that suffering, trusting in him. I want to share today one of the storms of my life, Jim and I. In 2005, I was pregnant with Murray. And we were at the Madison School. The enrollment went down, and so being that Jim was the last teacher hired, he was the first teacher to have to go when they didn't have the ability to employ three teachers anymore. And that was a trial for Jim because men, you know what it is to be responsible for your families, to have the money to support them. And he immediately started looking for a job, of course. And we had Brant, who was little, and Murray was now born. And I had the faith that God would provide for us the job that was needed when Jim didn't know if he believed that, had the faith for it. But he kept looking like you would naturally do. He had several interviews And by the time school ended, we still did not have a job. By that time, though I still believed God could provide a job, I was starting to waver in my faith a little bit more because postpartum depression had hit than that I didn't think God could do it. Uh, In June, he had several more interviews, and finally one of them was a job offer in Indiana. And I have to say, when God came through with the job I knew he could provide, I wasn't very happy because it wasn't where I wanted it to be. With postpartum depression, I knew the need of my mom. She would come over to our house because she was only an hour away, or I could run over to her house and get the help that I needed. And 
Chicago. Past Chicago seemed like a different country. And I just thought, I'm not going to have support. I'm not going to have help. We moved. Our families dropped us off. They left, and I went from just postpartum depression into depression. And the postpartum lifted at some point in there, but I couldn't tell because now I was depressed. Um, <laughs> the first week we went to church, I took Murray and I left Jim and Brant at church, and I went home, and I yelled at God all the way home. I had never been angry with God before, but what is so awesome about having a relationship with God is that you don't even stop to think that maybe I shouldn't be angry at him. You can just be angry with him. And I let him know. I let him know that this country beyond Chicago was too far away, that I needed support, that I couldn't do this by myself, that this felt lonely. He was fine with that. I did go back and get Jim and Brandt. Uh, <laughs> um, several weeks after that, in answer to my prayer, because even anger, you can be praying to God, you're talking with him. In answer to that, a few weeks later, a woman I did not know came up. She later told me that was a very strange thing for her to do, but she felt like she should, and she just said, I'm willing to babysit your kids whenever you need it. She thought maybe that would seem a little odd because we didn't know each other, but God was providing the support I needed, even though we were not moving back to Wisconsin. So we became friends with them. We wound up spending most Sabbaths at their home, and that was a huge blessing. I was still in depression, though. As we went into the fall, I noticed that my back, my lower back, hurt Always. I could wake up in the morning, it was hurting. I went to bed at night, it was still hurting. And I just thought, I have two young kids, that's why it hurts. I have to do all the housework. You know, you've got a lot of lifting. But as we continued into the fall and into the winter, I was sick with bronchitis over and over. Lots of nebulizer treatments, a lot of antibiotics. Um... I had gotten discoid lupus when I was pregnant, and that is just a lesion that comes out on your skin. And they'd given me a cream for that. And at this point, now that we had moved to Indiana, that lesion came back. And I thought, well, I know what to do about that. I'd just find a dermatologist, and he'll give me that cream, and it'll go away. God knows what he is doing with your life. I'm not one who interviews doctors, tries to find the right one. I just looked for a dermatologist, but he led me to that dermatologist. That man did his job well. He, when finding out that I had discoid lupus, said, I want to run some blood tests because it can go into your internal organs. It can become systemic, and that's not good. So he ran the blood tests, and he said, well, thankfully you do not have systemic lupus, but there is something wrong. And so he immediately sent me to a rheumatologist who then sent me to a nephrologist who ordered a kidney biopsy. And this was just kind of bing, 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 which again, as I look back, what a great God. He was lining it up. The timing was right. Yeah, this was now about April. And there was a day in April, I was looking out the kitchen window above the sink, and the sun came out. 
And just like that, my depression went away. And I thought, wow, I can breathe. It's like I'm floating. And when I looked back, I thought, I was really depressed. That was really low. You, you live through depression, and you don't realize how bad it is until it's lifted. And so I praised him that it was lifted. That was about when I had the kidney biopsy. And the nurse called a little while, maybe two weeks after, and she said, the doctor would like you to come in for the diagnosis I am a reasoning person, and I thought, if you're asking me to come in, then there's something very serious. And I'd rather you just tell me over the phone, because now the days in between, I'm going to be thinking, what could it be? But you wait. And so Jim and I went in, and God provided that doctor also. He's, he was an older doctor. He dealt mainly with people over 60, and he was surprised that I, a 27-year-old, was in his office He said, you have about three weeks before your kidneys shut down. That was the pain across my lower back. He he let me know I had a very rare kidney disease and that the uh, prognosis for that disease was about 10 years. And he said, I need you today to go to the pharmacy and get prednisone and chemo and then a handful of other drugs that were supposed to try and guard you from the side effects of those two. He said, it has to be today. You have to start it now. And that he was giving me the heaviest doses of those two that he could. And I've heard of other people having diagnoses like that who go into shock, they you know start to cry, whatever. And I didn't. I just... It seemed so strange. How how could that be that I could be 27 and have that serious of a disease? So Jim and I went to the pharmacy. We got the prescribed drugs, started them. For a month, all of May, I was happy. It was good. And actually, within a week, the pain in my back went away. So the prednisone was doing um, something good. But prednisone, if any of you have experienced it, is not a good drug. It causes weight gain, because you're always hungry. It causes water retention. I gained 60 pounds in three months, and a lot of it was water. In the, in the night, when I'd go to the bathroom, I could pee 10 pounds out, um, and it would come back. I could lean forward. And the water in the cells of my face would slosh forward. I could actually hear it and feel it. So my body was hurting now because every cell in it was full of water. And it also has side effects, which I think the doctor had actually told us, and I just didn't hear. It changes your personality, um, your reaction, and your emotions And I began to experience that at the end of May because there was a day that Jim and I were standing in the kids' bedroom. Cannot tell you what he said, and I'm sure it was nothing at all that deserved my reaction, but I went to clock him. And he ducked, thankfully. And we looked at each other. Both of us were horrified because that's not who I am. And he knew that, and I knew that. But I had done that. 
And I said, take the kids and get out. And so he left as long as he could. Of course, he had to come back. But that started um, some very, very dark and hard months. Every single day, an entire day, that's how that drug worked for me, an entire day would be either exhaustion, paranoia, anger, or sadness, and hardly ever was it happiness. One of the other side effects of it, which I was on quinine to try and prevent, is that you cramp. My stomach muscles would cramp, and you have to bend as far backwards as you can to try and get them to loosen up. I love writing, and my hands would cramp, just like that. You couldn't get them to loosen, and I had to stop writing. So something I loved was taken away from me. I wound up not able to drive because I would sneeze and my eyes would cramp shut. And that became funny to me, but you can't drive when your eyes are cramped shut and it takes about 30 seconds for them to slowly open. So life changed a lot. Thankfully, Jenny and her family took the kids whenever I needed them to do that. My parents and Jim's parents would take them because the aggression and the violence that the prednisone brought out in me was a lot. And it was scary for me and for Jim. Jim didn't want to come home at night because I had changed so much. But he would come home because the kids were there and they needed him. I would go to bed most nights and say, Lord, you don't have to wake me up. Please don't. Because I hurt so bad and the mental psychosis was terrible. But I can look back now and say, Lord, thank you that you didn't honor the request that I had every night of putting me to sleep because life is still good and you have changed things and I've walked that affliction with you. We went to the park one day and there's a river that runs by that park and the kids threw rocks in the water and they did that for just a little while because they were small and then they headed on to the playground And I stayed there by that river, and all of a sudden, the most overwhelming thought and pressure came on to walk into that river and keep walking until it covered my head. And I really wanted to do that. But he who keeps you and does not slumber also guards our hearts and our minds. And in the back of my mind, I could hear him say, no, don't do that. Satan is so loud and he is so crushing that it took me a lot of minutes to be able to walk away from that river. And then after that, I felt guilt that I would have thought such a thing, even though that was not my own thought. So I didn't tell Jim or my family for quite a while. Um, Another time... Jim had come home. I knew he needed a break from me. I was tired because I was tired constantly. And I went to bed early. But that evil force that Satan is, along with the paranoia of the drugs, was weighing so much on me I couldn't go to sleep. I was afraid. And so I called my sister and I asked her to pray for me. Because right at that spot, I didn't even feel like I could pray for myself. 
And she prayed for me. She prayed God's hedge of protection around me for an hour before I could finally fall asleep. I thank him for other people who pray for you and intercede. Around that time, my mom came and she noticed the aggression and the violence in me. And she called the doctor and she was going to tell him what I was like. And he said, no, don't even tell me just half her medication, because, of course, he was a mandated reporter. And I would have wound up uh, dealing with social services if he had heard what I was being like. Thankfully, he knew it wasn't me. It was the medication. But I spent longer weaning off of prednisone than I had initially been on it. I asked for the elders and the pastor to come and anoint me, because it's a disease that I couldn't do anything about, but also because of the anger that was in me. And they came, and the pastor said, we're going to pray with you, we'll anoint you with oil, and we will leave without making any idle chit-chat, because this is the Holy Spirit's work. We're asking him to work, and we're not going to interfere. And so they did that. They prayed, they anointed me, and they left. And what I really wanted most, what I really knew I needed most, God did for me immediately. I was like the man who was let down through the ceiling on the stretcher in front of Jesus, who needed forgiveness. And Jesus did that for me. I didn't feel like I needed healing from the disease as much as I needed that. And in the years since, my disease has gotten better than what they said it could, but I still have it, and that's okay with me. My sister called me um, somewhere in this and shared with me um, her devotional time with Jesus, her worship. She has a very vivid imagination. Since she was a little kid, she would always be imagining heaven and how beautiful and how she was going to be there. And she said, Amy... When I pray for people, I actually imagine being at God's throne. And I put those people at his feet, and I ask him to work in their life. And she said, he will tell me what I can do for them because I'm his disciple. And so he would either give her words or actions that she could do for that person. And then she says, and so he gives them back to me. And I thought, okay. And she said, I came to you today. And I put you before God's throne, and he kept you. At that place in my mental trauma and psychosis, I needed to know that God treasured me so much that he would keep me. And of course, he keeps every one of us. But that was very special and helpful for me at that time. After about a year of being on prednisone, that was about how long it took to finally be off of it. I was sitting at the kitchen table, not doing much of anything because I couldn't use my hands while they were still cramping. But I had a CD in that I had been given of hymns, and the hymn that we're going to sing as our closing song was on "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus.'" And I was humming along, and I was appreciating the words because you know as you're going through suffering and trauma what Jesus is doing for you in it. And I was agreeing with the words, 
until it came to the chorus and the words, how I've proved him o'er and o'er, came. And I thought, whoa, that sounded like blasphemy to me. How could I, a weak human being, prove God, the creator of the universe, the savior of the world? And the Holy Spirit had to step in and tell me, Amy, you prove God by not giving in to the paranoia, calling your sister and asking her to pray for you. You prove God by walking away from a river death. You prove him by sending your children to your parents or Jim's parents because you know what you are doing isn't good for them. You prove God by trusting him. You prove God by asking elders and the pastor to come and pray for you and anoint you. And so then I was all right with that song, that each one of us can prove God over and over in the little and the big places in our life. Can you confess what you do not know? Can you testify to what you haven't seen or heard or experienced? You can't. But praise God, he puts us through a furnace of affliction so that we know him, so that we know he keeps us, and that he is melting off the dross that's in us, the sin. He's taking that away. He died for each one of us to take it out of our lives. And thankfully, you see God, he is your hope. And his beauty is astounding, and the contrast between your storm and him is huge. It's a huge difference, and you can see how beautiful he is in your storm and sometimes after your storm. So I just want to ask you guys, tell me your story sometime. Tell me your suffering. Tell me what you can confess about our God. Let's turn to 524, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.